Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Jay Warren Tima, the inaugural Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Nebraska. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Jay Warren Tima is an Omaha native who has spent her personal and professional life serving our community. In August 2020, She was appointed as the inaugural Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Nebraska, where she drives the diversity, equity and inclusion strategy for the company and also oversees the company's corporate social responsibility and wellness efforts. Jay has worked in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector for the last 10 years with previous roles at Partnership for Kids, United Way of the Midlands and Mutual of Omaha. With her childhood friend, Ashley Spivey, Jay co-founded IB Black Girl, and leads the group's giving circle, IBBG Gives. As a highly engaged community advocate, Jay has served on numerous nonprofit boards and been honored with several community awards. As well as being an old school R&B aficionado, Jay's greatest joy is her family. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, I'm excited to be here. Why did Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska create this role uh, that you now occupy of um, Director of Diversity and Inclusion? And I'm curious why you took it. Yeah. So let's, you know, rewind to summer of 2020, right? And as we all know, um, we experienced the murder of George Floyd. We had our own local um, situation with the murder of James Gerlach. And um, I I, I think there was just a, a tension in the air, right, for folks personally and for the spaces that folks occupy. So whether that's work, home, and community, um, there was a, a, a lot brewing. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Nebraska had been doing DEI work in some way, shape, or form for the last 20 years. Not as formal as it is now by any means, but um, there was work happening, um, really committed group of employees who were just kind of raising their hands across the enterprise to say, hey, we care about this, we should do something. And I think what the summer of 2020 did for our company and for a lot of companies was put it in a laser focus that this is not um, ancillary work, like that, that this has to be kind of core to who we are and how we do business. I wasn't looking for a job when I saw the job posting and read it. And what really interested me was a few things. Um, one, the position didn't sit in human resources, which traditionally this role does, because I think they saw the necessity of it serving as a enterprise-wide function and not just a hiring function. Um, And there was also this element of community. So it wasn't just, you know, leading DEI for um, the employees, but then how does this extend into how we show up in the marketplace? How does it show up for our groups? How does it show up um, as a major employer in the state? How does this show up as a Nebraska-based insurer? How does this show up um, in the way that we do business and, and the communities we invest in? So it was really that blend of um, obviously kind of the core DEI work, but then also the ability to extend that out into the community that really kind of piqued my interest. So I'm glad that straight away you highlighted the context of the time when you took the job in August 2020. And acknowledging that Blue Cross had already been doing this work, but not in any form, formal kind of way. So this, as it were, catalyzed that. And I'm noting, of course, that the day that we're recording this mm-hmm. conversation is the second anniversary of George Floyd's murder and the same week that James Scurlock was killed too. And, and I do want to come back to the implications of that for your work. Before I ask about that, though, I think it makes some sense perhaps just to ask you, when we talk about DEI, I think it can mean different things for different people. And, and, and certainly I think people listening may have their own understanding of what it means to them. But I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing for you, what, what does that mean? And whether that's for you personally or in your professional role as the strategist for the company? 
I'll, I'll start with what it means for me personally, um, because it certainly informs how I approach this work professionally. I am an Omaha native, uh, born and raised, um, and I know that my experience as a black woman in Omaha, Nebraska, um, unfortunately is really unique. Um, I um, have a lot of privilege and a lot of support, a lot of access to places and spaces, um, was able to graduate from college debt-free, go on to grad school, and really have been able to give back in a major way. That experience, unfortunately, is really unique for the majority of black women um, or women of color in Omaha. And so really, I think what led me to diversity, equity, and inclusion, like that wasn't on my, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up board. Um, but what led me to this was just a er, pretty early understanding that not everyone has the same access and experiences that I do. And why not um, is, is what kind of led me there. And so as I think about what this means for me personally, um, especially now, I am married to a black man and I have a black son and uh, Kingston is two and a half. You know, he was born December 2019, right? So right in the pandemic. And then we have this uh, racial reckoning, if you will, happening. And I'm like, of course, I've always been conscious and aware, um, but having a kid and having a black son brought this acutely into focus for me in terms of what does this mean for him? Um, what kind of world am I raising him in? Um, how are people going to see him after he's no longer, you know, a little two-year-old with cute chubby cheeks? And so kind of thinking about the significance of, of dates, our, our wedding anniversary is August 9th, 2014. So we have this beautiful wedding, beautiful reception. Um, and I was in the, we were in the car headed to the hotel and I just grabbed my phone and I see, oh, there was a shooting in St. Louis. Of course, thinking about Mike Brown, right? And so for me, this this work isn't tangential to my life. It, it is my life um, for my lived experience and, and the things I care about. So as I approach diversity, equity, and inclusion work, um, diversity to me, quite frankly, is the least interesting part of DEI. Diversity simply is numbers. It's what's the representation? Who's in the room? What identities do we have represented and in what volume? So that's really the least interesting part of it to me. Um, I want to come back to equity because I think it's the most important. And then the inclusion piece is really around belonging. So if you have um, diversity in the room, and it's really important that we talk about diversity is a noun, not an adjective. People are not diverse. You know, I, I hate when people say, oh, this is a diverse population. Well, no, like let's say what we mean. We mean black or brown or other otherwise minoritized folks. But inclusion is if you have diversity in the room, how are folks connected? How are folks engaged? How are folks feeling like they belong, um, that their identities aren't going to hold them back or um, somehow ex exclude them from opportunity? So in inclusion is is really the um, the output, if you will, of doing, quote unquote, diversity work well. Um, equity to me is the most important. It's the hardest part of this work. Um and I've, I want to underscore that there's a distinction between equity and equality. Um, equality means everybody gets the same thing. Equity means people get what they need to be successful. So, um, you know, I'm sitting across from you, store, and you're a lot taller than me. So uh, equality would be if we're going for a bike ride and we get the same size bike and we both get a size seven shoe and we get the same size helmet. Um, I'm a size nine shoe. You're a little taller than me. I probably couldn't ride the same bike as you. We probably both be a little uncomfortable. That's equality. Equity means we get helmets that are appropriately sized for us, shoes that fit our feet, bikes that fit our height. And, and that's a really oversimplified example, but it's about how do we make sure that people have what they need to be successful and recognizing that there might need to be an overextension of resources or access because of the ways that folks have been historically excluded. So that's really how I approach this work. I have this very deep personal connection to DEI, how it's been branded. But because of my um, lived experience and the identities that I hold in this world, um, I'm very clear about what diversity, equity, and inclusion work means. And kind of circling back to your first question, that is really what attracted me to this role is because I was super clear about that perspective during my interview process, super clear about um, the things that I hold true and my approach to this work. And they were like, okay. 
So it's um, been been really empowering for me to be the first person in this role full time um, because there's a sense of trust. And I don't feel like I have to suppress my views or uh, my approach to the work um, because it is personal. And I don't think that anyone can do this work and not take it personal. So you make it really accessible for people, and yet at the same time, you wear on your sleeve that this affects you deeply. I'm wondering how people are receiving what is a really important um, and you know essential topic. I always lead with my why um, when I when I do this work, um, or when I'm in a setting in which you know I'm wearing the professional DEI practitioner at, I start with my why. And my why is that this has been my experience. Um, my why is that I'm deeply rooted in this community. My why is that I'm raising a little boy that I want to have a different experience and deserves, quite frankly, a, um, a different experience than maybe the path that is predetermined for him based on him being a black boy from Omaha. Um, so I always start with my why. I also kind of tend to follow this mantra in my work that, it, you know, the folks I interact with are kind of on a bell curve. So I have the folks that I don't have to convince at all. I have the folks that I'll never convince. Really where I get my sweet spot is in that frozen middle, right? So I don't tend to spend my energy trying to convince people that this work is important um, because if you don't have the openness or, or even the window for me to say, okay, well, let's talk about this. Or if I have to convince you, like, I'm, I, I just don't spend my time there. Um, that's probably not the right thing to do. But I, there's no point in me exerting my personal and professional energy trying to convince someone who doesn't see this work as important. I'm really grateful because there's a ton of folks who just are like, yes, what do we need to do? How does this work? How can we help? How can I hold myself accountable? And those folks need my attention, but not as much, right? Who need my attention are the folks kind of, it's kind of squishy, right? The folks in the middle going, ooh, yeah, that's uncomfortable, but I don't know if I want to engage or, hey, I, I saw this thing, but I'm, I'm afraid to ask that question. And so I, I feel like by starting with my why, it creates an environment for folks to realize, like, I don't have all the answers. I'm still figuring this out. I make missteps. Um, but by creating the environment that it's okay to ask questions and acknowledging that, like, you're on the journey, Again, I don't spend my time with the folks over here who, you know, this is woke stuff or this is, you know, who throw out acronyms like CRT and have no idea what it means. Like, I, I just don't have the energy to engage over there. And so really, I, I think starting with who I am and why this work is important to me creates the space if folks are willing or interested to share where they are, too, and to engage with me um, on the journey. And so sometimes that is really exhausting because I, I shouldn't have to um, humanize or deeply personalize the work, but I do because that is, is hard work. I always say this is hard work and it's hard work. But for me and, and all the roles that I've held professionally and in community, I, I lead with heart. I'm also a tourist. So if you're into astrology, um, I'm pretty uh, stubborn. I mean, I'm very headstrong. And so depending on the audience, I can go heady if I need to. And if we want to talk the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion, if we want to talk about how, you know, teams that are made up of 
more than just white folks make better decisions. We can go through all of the, you know, academics and the business case and the rhetoric. We can go there if you have to. Um, But I found that um, I'm most successful when I can lead with heart. And I think that invites others to do the same. This feels like a hard question to ask. You took the role on with uh, shortly after the murder of George Floyd, and we just talked about that and James Scullock too. Those are two individuals um, amongst a long list of individuals that have been murdered or, or, or killed for whatever reason over the course of the last two years. And that's just the last two years. And we're recording this just shortly after the mass shooting in Buffalo. And so it feels, I'm sure, like it's never ending. And the reason why I mention this is because does the litany of this trauma get in the way of you actually being able to do the work? Um, because it, it focuses such a high emotional pitch and a partisan pitch, you, you can't get rid of the noise to actually reach people and to do the hard work. Um, this is a hard role to be in. And I'm not saying it as, you know, Jay at Blue Cross Mitchell of Nebraska. I'm saying it for the folks who might have DEI in their title. I'm saying it for the folks who do the work off the side of their desk. I'm saying it for the folks who are, you know, the individuals in their organization banging on the wall to make this important. It is very tiring and it's traumatizing because, um, and I talk about, we have a kind of a group of us who get together regularly. Um, we're doing this work for us, right? And so, yes, we're the person up front leading the work, but, um, you know, at work, I'm doing it to create access for more people of color. Um, for With IBBG, I'm doing it to create access for black women, femmes and girls. Oh, and by the way, I am one, right? And so it's, it's, it's this weird place of like, yes, I will be the one out front. I will be the one carrying the torch. I will be the one... Um, calling people to the carpet. I, I will be the one um, saying the hard things. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm also someone who benefits from this work. And so it is tiring. Um, the trauma of it is real. I remember um, I had probably been about a year, maybe a little over a year into the role um, when the verdict of, um, and, and the George Floyd murder was announced. And, um, thinking, oh man, like it was just a heavy day. And then I realized it hit me, oh, people are going to be looking to me to help guide them through this conversation, to guide them through this moment. And, you know, I just wanted to call my parents and I just wanted to, you know, kiss my baby. Like, and, and so it's, it's, it's those moments where the, the, the weight of the role can weigh. I was actually having a drink with my boss that afternoon and, um, I just like, you know, I, I think we need to get something out. And so I, I wrote, I just, and, and I wrote from heart, wrote from heart just to um, our employees to acknowledge the gravity of the moment, to acknowledge um, what people were feeling and thinking, um, trying to encourage them to um, be steadfast in this work. And if you're not okay, that's okay. Um, and as much as I was writing it to our 1200 employees, I was writing it to myself. Um, <laughs> Just to understand that, like, we are in it. We are in it. And this affects all of us. Um, it affects those of us who have been marginalized and minoritized just as much. And so I couldn't do this work without the support of folks around me who remind me, like, you got to take care of yourself, too. I have a, I have a group chat of friends from college and... Um, you know, today we're talking after the shooting in Texas and a lot of us have kiddos. Um, one of us is an educator. And so um, I go to the group chat in those moments where I need, you know, a little a little love and support. I'm grateful for my husband who grounds me and says, log off. Let's go to the park and play. Um, he he keeps me um, connected to the things that matter most. Um, and sometimes you just got to check out rest and the ability to um, kind of recharge for me is imperative because I could not do this work. And and I think that's why we see so many folks get burnt out of this work. Um, you know, summer of 2020, you know, my company included said, okay, we need somebody to guide the work. 
Excellent. I'm fortunate that I walked into a company that was ready to have somebody guide the work who gave me trust, who gave me budget, who gave me access to leadership. Um, a lot of my peers don't have that. They walked into organizations where they weren't ready. So they might have the role, but they don't have the budget. They might have the role, but they can't, you know, get anything moved across the organization. And so it's a it's a really tiring role. And so without the support of folks around me, I certainly couldn't manage the trauma personally that I experienced. Um, and then having to help guide and lead others through really transformative initiatives that guide us to where we want to get to. But it's not for not, right? And we have to acknowledge all of the, um, we, we wouldn't have to do this work if bad things didn't happen. We wouldn't have to do this work if populations of folks have not been historically excluded. So we don't get to just do the rah-rah DNI work without acknowledging some of the um, intentional decisions and lack of access and exclusion that folks have experienced. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a lot, but um, grateful again, that I just have people around me who keep me uh, sane and grounded and um, kind of give me the fuel I need to, to keep pushing. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. We'll be back after this break. Like a supermodel What catwalk did you come from? Yeah And like a genie in a bottle I wouldn't even need three wishes, only one And that's you, baby You turn hands in every room that you enter Every man in this place and look at her Cause you're so dope, baby How can I leave here with you? You are the most, baby I just gotta leave here with you Excuse me, miss, what's your name? I just wanna know ya Welcome back. This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Jay Warren Tima, the inaugural Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Nebraska. Let's talk about the work. I guess it's a two-part question. You know, what what are you actually doing when you sort of go into the office and you know attending to your goals and what 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 is that vision? Yeah, I uh, will be remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, the folks who are doing this work before me because I was able to come and hit the ground running because there was work already happening across the enterprise. So we have a diversity and inclusion group who's made up of a group of volunteers from across the company who worked with senior leaders to get our employee resource groups stood up. They were hosting events, um, working with our HR team on training ops. And so I didn't, I didn't walk in on ground zero. Like I, I certainly had a leg up. And so I need to, and I, whenever I get a chance to thank them and acknowledge them, um, I do because the foundation was certainly there. So when I came into the organization, um, I did a lot of listening, just listening because it was so important to me to honor the work that had been done before me to make sure that um, anything I introduced to the organization was cognizant of kind of where we were organizationally. Um, what were people thinking? What were people feeling? Um, I had a few conversations with some skeptics just to, you know, you always want to understand the haters like, okay, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? But um, really clearly and really early it came in kind of focus for me, five key areas that we needed to work on. So um, our five strategic direction areas are first, um, attracting, hiring, and retaining diverse talent. The second is around our employee resource groups, making sure we grow and sustain them. The third is our employment brand in the community. Um, how does DNI show up for the Cross and Blue Shield of Nebraska? One of my first conversations with our CEO, he said to me, "Okay, Jay, what's our reputation in the community when it comes to DNI?" So I kind of froze, like, okay, I just got this job. Is this a trick question? How do I answer this? And um, I said to him, you know, we're kind of a sleeping giant. There's nothing bad out there, but there's nothing that we're doing that's like 
out there are super exciting. And so his charge to me that day was, okay, let's kind of make something shake. So we really spent a lot of time being intentional around our brand and how do we infuse DE&I into the way we show up externally um, with a special focus on making sure that there um, isn't any uh, dissonance between our employees' experience and what we're saying out in the market. So uh, the third is really around that employment brand. The fourth is an inclusive leadership. And so how do we equip our leaders across the organization? And this is just not people leaders in the formal sense. I, I truly believe um, that you can lead from where you are. But how do we equip our folks with the tools, the language, the skills that they need to lead equitably and to um, create an environment of inclusion for their teams? And then the fifth is equity mindedness. It's the most vague. It is the most difficult. It's my favorite. Um but really thinking about how do we embed equity into the way we make decisions in terms of who gets access to what and why? Um, how do we allocate resources? Who's not reflected in this conversation? Who's not in the room will be most impacted by this decision? And so just trying to create that culture of equity mindedness so that we're thinking about how can we embed equity um, into the decisions we make into the work that we do. So those are kind of the five uh, big buckets that um, we've set out I very intentionally do not call them goals because we'll never check the box on any of those. Um, there will always be work to be done. So um, a, a few things that we've done kind of um, across those five are, and I think I mentioned earlier, I don't sit in our HR team. I sit within our marketing communications and strategy team, um, which is a, it's, it's a different spot for this role, but I'm glad it's not in there because what it allows us to do is think holistically and partner with HR um, to partner with our procurement team, for example, on um, supplier diversity, to be um, having conversations with our clinical team about maternal health equity. I mean, so it, it just really creates a um, kind of a broader, broader view. Um, but a few things we've done, um, pay equity. So making sure that folks are getting paid um, equally for equal work. Um, we have taken a look at our employment brand. And so how do we show up as an employer and how does someone come across DE&I if they're looking for a job at Nebraska Blue? Um, when I applied for this job, there was no presence on the website. It's like, okay, there's a something we can take care of fairly easily. Um, so making sure we're talking about that as a part of um, our, our employment brand as a prospective employer for folks. We have our employee resource groups. We have six of them. Um, they are fantastic. They're employee led, um, but really making sure that they have the resources they need um, and, and the visibility that they deserve across the organization. So this spring, we actually hosted our first Belonging at Blue Summit, where we brought together all six of our employee resource groups for a week long summit of speakers and learning and engagement and activities. Um, and it was awesome. So I'm really excited and proud of the team um, for what they pulled off there. We've also spent a lot of time thinking about that kind of employee life cycle. So from the time someone is hired to the time they retire, how do we embed principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion along that journey? So from talent attraction, where are we showing up as a prospective employer? Um, here's a good example. Thinking about um, college students, for example. Um, historically, we would just post our postings on the career site. Well, I know when I was in college, I didn't necessarily go to the career services office. I was hanging out at the student union. I was hanging out at the culture center at UNL. I'm talking to my sorority sisters. And so just thinking about what are the ways that we can attract differently, making sure that um, the language on our job postings isn't gendered. Things that were easy to do, but made a huge impact in terms of um, how we show a prospective employer. Um, on the on the retention piece, um, we actually took a pretty deep dive into our um, employee engagement survey um, and some of our employee demographics. So overall, of course, we're looking at things like tenure and attrition and promotion rates and, you know, employee experience. Um, but for the first time, we dissected that by demographics to really understand are employees having a similar experience regardless of demographics. And so we cut it by race and by gender by age. Um, I know those are the big three, um, but to really understand like our folks having a similar experience and there were some gaps. And so, um, you know, taking a deep dive into that data helped us identify, okay, here's some places that we can really zoom in. I mean, it can't be a one size fits all. This gets to that equity piece. Overall, we had really great employee engagement. Excellent. But that's not everyone's experience. Right. And so we, we need to dissect that a bit. So those are a few of the things that we've done. And I also get the privilege of 
overseeing our corporate social responsibility team. And so um, we really try as much as we can to make sure the things that we're investing in or supporting out in the community align with our focus on diversity, equity, inclusion as well. So, of course, we've talked about some horrific traumas, but of course, how could we forget that you started your work just at the the apex of fear, I think, and uncertainty around a pandemic? And six month old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so not a lot of uncertainty and fear and anxiety going on then. So there's the pandemic that is impacting your work, but also I think the pandemic itself and, and how it changed how we work also meant that the work you did had to respond to the changes in the workplace because of the pandemic. So it's affecting you, but also you have to respond to it. And I'm, I'm just wondering how you adapted to that. Yeah. So I, so I started August, 2020. Um, so I'd have been, you know, six months or, you know, yeah, six, seven months into the pandemic. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, we'll be home maybe for a few more months. Right. Um, and so I was onboarded virtually. Um, I went to the office a bit, but at that point was still mostly virtual. And so starting in this role that is so, heavily impacted by the connections that people can make. How do folks feel engaged? Are there spots where people can connect both formally and informally? Are there safe spaces created um, for, for conversation and dialogue? So it was really interesting starting in this role um, in the pandemic because I'm like, how do we adapt? And it was really interesting because since I started in the role, that's kind of what I knew, right? So it, you know, I felt like I had the leg up a little bit because compared to some of my peers, you know, everything was in person. Every, you know, everyone's together physically, which I think drives so much of the sense of belonging at times and had to figure out how to pivot. Well, I didn't have the pivot because <laughs> that's just what it was. And so um, we really, you know, dove in on things like um, our Microsoft Teams channels and creating dialogue there, um, lots of virtual events. Um, we, uh, people still loved, you know, we got these really fun uh, sweatshirts made with all of our ERG logos and sold them on our company store. They're so like hotcakes, like people still wanted to have that sense of pride and connection, um, even though we weren't together physically. And so, you know, the challenge now, I think for us and for me as a person leading this work for our organization is how do we um, continue to offer programs and activities and initiatives for the hybrid workforce? Um, because when we were all at home, that's all we had. But now that we have a choice, right? Uh, how often do I want to be in the office? Do I want to be in the office? Um, how do we offer um, hybrid experiences to our employees? And so um, I, I think that's the next kind of um big challenge for our work is um, majority of our folks work from home 100% of the time. Um, and so if we continue to, especially with our employee resource groups, kind of use that as a, as a um, kind of crux of our, some of our uh, DEI engagement, what does that look like for the employee who never comes to the office? What does that look like for the employee who lives in Scott's Bluff and is 100% remote? Um, and so things like the summit were excellent because no matter where you sat in the organization, where you sat across Nebraska, you could join in. Yeah, the, the the pivot for me now is more, okay, so not, by no means are we out of the pandemic, but as we, um, it's a choice now. We didn't have a choice or option in the summer of 2020. Okay, cool. So th this is just what I know. But now it's like, okay, how do we, how do we get to the other side of this? And so um, me and my team spent a lot of time thinking about that because I, 
um, with the DEI, our corporate social responsibility, but then also our wellness teams. And so um, that's like the big question for us. That's, that's one of our big rocks for the year is how do we adapt the work we do and the things we offer to our employees with this hybrid workforce? We don't have the answer. If anybody does, they can call me. But that's one of our big rocks is just making sure that we can ensure that folks still feel connected and that we feel accessible um, as an organization. I know you're an Omaha native. You've shared that with us. So what was your childhood like? What, what sort of stands out to you? I'm the oldest of three. Um, so I, you know, if you believe in birth order, I'm certainly a, a textbook uh, oldest child. Um, just have a kind of deep sense of responsibility from very early, very early age. And I also watched my parents and my aunt. So um, both my parents have had long careers in public service. And so watching them, you know, manage career and family and community, to me, that was just normal, right? Um, going to my mom to board meetings and having my backpack and coloring books and sitting in the corner with a snack, like that's just was normal. So I've, I've always um, had this kind of, I think, inherent deep sense of responsibility to be of service to others. Um, but then I was raised in an environment where that was just the norm. And my aunt, you know, she, um, Brenda Council, she, you know, ran for mayor twice, was almost mayor. You know, I'm 11 watching that. Well, of course I could be mayor one day. You know, like it just it just was not outside of and by no means do I want to be mayor. But, um, you know, just just watching the way that she was able to navigate as a black woman, again, in deep service to this community, um, but was still my cool auntie who let my brother drive her Jaguar to prom one year. Right. Uh, the, the way we were raised was I always watched my folks and folks around me be of service to others. And I'm also a recipient of folks who poured into me. I attended Girls Inc. after school. I went to Boys and Girls Club after school. Um, and so the folks in my life around me, you know, I am a product truly of um, this community in so many ways. And so I, I think when I got older, as I got older, I realized, like, again, that's, this is not everybody's experience. I, I've always said that I'm at my best when I'm in service to others. And so um, as I you know, became a grown up, I don't know when you qualify as a grown up, but when I became a grown up, I, I knew any role that I was in professionally had to be towards that, towards that end. Another guest on this show, uh, she's a therapist. Uh, her name's Tracy Rubel. And she explained to me when I asked her a question, she said behind a question, there's a statement. And so there's a statement behind this question. Uh, the question is, if you recognize that you are a leader in this community and how that feels. So that's my question. But the statement I really am getting at is sort of don't, don't you want to put that burden down and just not be of service? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the funny thing is that I've slowed down a lot. I've slowed down a lot. So I feel like, so right after undergrad, I went straight to grad school at UNM, um, started working at Partnership for Kids and was just, you know, the, the path in my head was do more, work harder, go farther. Like that, I was just on this grind just to do more. So I was serving on these boards and committees and, and enjoying that work. But you know, I was tired and like wasn't, present in the ways that I wanted to be. And so truly um, what helped me slow down was the pandemic. First, you know, I was pregnant, um, but the pandemic and really just thinking about what do I care about? What do I want to do? <laughs> um, what's important to me? How do I want to spend my time? And so um, I skinny down the list of external commitments pretty uh, heavily. And um, IBBG is the only thing outside of my full-time job that's on the resume right now because I don't have the, like I can't be everything to everybody. Um, maybe five years ago, I wouldn't have uh, admitted that, <laughs> um, that I couldn't be everything to everybody. But it, being able to um, go deep and not go wide has, has really helped me. Um, having a two and a half year old has really helped me because uh 
He could care less what my job title is. He does not think it's impressive that I'm on these boards. Mommy can play cards with me, right? Like that is what is important. So yeah, sometimes I I, I do want to chill out a little bit and I feel like I have uh, quite a bit. And um, <laughs> your question and your statement reminded me of um, my, my husband uh, has a book club and it's called I Don't Read, but... And it's for folks who maybe don't consider themselves like traditional readers. And so um, the, the the book selections can read from something or from can vary from something really heady, heavy to things like um, All the Places You Will Go by Dr. Seuss. And I remember we were at the book club meeting for All the Places You Will Go. And we we're uh, at Jones Brothers and reading it. And there's a point in the book where visually, um, you know, they're, they're going up the, the mountain and there's kind of a plateau and I remember saying in that conversation, I'm okay being at the plateau right now. I don't I don't want to keep climbing. Can I? Yeah. But do I want to? No. Like, I'm, I'm kind of good where I'm at, right? Like, I've, I've worked hard. I've done a lot. Um, and I do have more to contribute. But when I'm ready and um, the um, I, IBBG leadership team, um, we kind of had a, a aha moment a, probably about six months ago. We're working with some um, phenomenal consultants um, and they simply said to us, who, who are you doing this work for? And we said, black women, femmes and girls. OK, well, why? So, you know, we got on this line of questioning and they flipped the mirror and said, um, are, are you not black women, femmes and girls? Do you not deserve the same rest and abundance and joy um, that you're trying to create from others? Huh. Um, and so. It, it, it slapped me like a ton of bricks, but it's true. Like, I don't have to be all the things. I, I wrestle with that sometimes because if not me, then who? But sometimes some stuff just has to be over there and be somebody else's problem. And that's okay. Just to look into your eyes and do nothing Yeah, honey, that's my own getaway It's your hair holding mine And my head on your chest It's a dream for me Loving on my man That's my only plan Chilling with my baby It sounds perfect, don't you say Hey, darling, let's play Tell me all your fantasies Ain't nobody else for me Hey, darling, just stay Your love helps me make Lay up in this bed on Saturday All I wanna do is kick back and lay low Little Al Green playing on the stereo Glass of wine, just some you and me time, let's go Away to nowhere All I wanna do is kick back and lay low Little Al Green playing on the stereo Glass of wine, just some you and me time, let's go Away to nowhere, oh Let's go So I'm glad that you've reached that particular watershed moment in your life and however your life looks from here, we'll know in the future. But nonetheless, you have had years and years worth of service. And I'm wondering what have been some of your experiences? What sort of stands out to you when you think about what you've learned or what you've seen from those experiences in our community doing the service that you have? If we want to do better, we can do better. Um, having worked in philanthropy, having sat in boardrooms, um, if we want to do better, we can do better. I've, I've also learned that um, the answer is typically in the room. Some, some things that I've seen start and stop is because we were trying to make decisions without recognizing we don't have the answers. We're not reflective of the folks we're trying to serve. I, I think I've, I learned that early on, fortunately, and so I'm always cognizant of voice and input. Um, a great example with that is with IB Black Girl. Um, we caught ourselves IB Black Girl and we looked around and we're like, we're a bunch of 30-somethings. Where are the girls at? <laughs> Where are the girls at, right? Like, we're, we're doing this work. Where are the girls at? And so um, we created a youth advisory committee because we, yes, we're doing this work for us, but like 
we're going to get out of the way at some point. And so we need to invest in next generation of leaders. So yeah, just, we're just really making sure that like we are not doing things for people. We are doing things with people is super important to me. Um, and for me, um, at, at this point, kind of in my life, I, I really do focus on things I care about on black women, fems and girls. Um, IBBG obviously is the primary kind of driver for that in my life. But um, I truly believe that if we can do right and do better by black women, fems and girls, everyone benefits. I, I truly believe that in my heart of hearts. And so, um, yeah, just, you know, making sure that like, if, if, if I'm in the room, um, I'm representing the voices and the perspectives of those who are not. I also have gotten really good at passing the mic. It doesn't have to be me. Um, the number of calls I get to say, hey, your name came up on the nominating committee for this board. And I will pause and say, are you looking for a black person? Are you looking for a woman? Are you looking for a YP? Are you looking for all three? If so, like I know several really qualified folks. It does not have to be me. Um, 10 years ago, I would have been like, oh gosh, well, there's nobody there, so I have to do it. I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I, I really have tried to get out of the way um, and, and give people space and opportunity um, to engage. Some of it selfishly because I'm tired, um, but some of it is because it's like people are brilliant. And just because you know, you recognize my last name or, you know, I've, you know, been on a board, like I, other people can do this work. And a lot of people are smarter than me too. So like, let, let, let's bring them into the room. So um, those are some of the things I think I have learned. I am learning, still practicing um, in terms of how I kind of show up in community. The work that you do has resonance for you in doing the work and having the experiences that you've had. How do you feel you've changed how are you a different person now than you were just a couple of years ago I am much more reflective even in the last I think three years I've just slowed down so much and um I was just kind of on this grind um addicted if you will to the busyness and thinking because I was doing a bunch of stuff that you know, that somehow defined my value or my worth. And I kind of got to this point of like, what am I trying to prove? And to who and to and why? My husband will laugh when he listens to this because he's been saying that to me for our entire relationship. So we'll, we'll be married for eight years this summer together for 15. Because he checks me on that all the time. Like, your resume stops at the door. Like, when you come into this house, you're Jay, you're my wife and your king's and mom. Like, that's it, right? So he, he keeps me honest that way. Um, but I, I certainly think I have just become much more reflective on the things that matter most. Um, becoming a mom absolutely changed me. You know, I was so grateful. We had a healthy pregnancy and a healthy delivery and this bouncing baby boy. And then boom, the pandemic hits. Um, and so it just became, I mean, he became our sole focus, keeping him healthy, keeping him safe. Um how do we, as a couple, you know, think about our marriage um, as parents? Now that looks totally different. We've been married for seven years. We did what we wanted for seven years. Um, and now we have this little babe, right? And so what does that mean? And what does that look like? Um, so I feel like I'm just much more reflective. I'm much more intentional. I honor and take the rest that I need. I could still work on that a little bit. Um, but recognizing that there is no um, gold star for being busy, and if it is, uh, I haven't seen it. Um, and so just really making sure that I um, make time and spend time for the things that are important to me. And for me right now, that's really my family and the people closest to me. So, you know, I've been able to travel a little bit, which has been nice. Um, I, I mentioned my group chat. We do a um, mystery trip every year. So um, last year we ended up in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm planning this year's trip, so I won't mention where we're going, but um, it'll be awesome. going to celebrate eight years of marriage this summer. And so those are the things like that are dear and near and kind of, you know, in that heart space. Not these awards, not... I mean, I'm glad I have a master's degree, but, you know, at the end of the day, if somebody asked me, like, what's important to me, those, 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 those things aren't 
what's going to kind of make me me and um, who I am and how I show up to the world. So um, this is definitely taking more time, slowing down um, and just being a, a lot more reflective. Building on that, in the work that you do, it would be quite easy, I think, to be uh, pessimistic. I'm wondering what it is that gives you hope, that makes you hopeful for a different future. It has to be better. It, it has to be better. And if we want to do better, we can do better. Um, what keeps me going is that I know that this work matters. I get to see it um, reflected when um, employees stop me in the hall and thank me for something we did or some, you know, conversation we had or um, some, you know, having D&I on our website, for example, got tons of IMs that day. Oh, this is great. What, what keeps me going is that thinking about the next generation of black women, fems and girls um, in Omaha um, and in the Midwest deserve access and have gifts um, to bring to this community. Um, because I see it. Um, I just need everybody else to see it. And so um, I, I think what keeps me going is that I'm, I might not change the landscape of Omaha, but what I can change are, you know, the hearts and minds of 1,200 employees at Blue Cross Blue of Nebraska. What I can change are the um, projects that we invest in through IBBG. You know, we've invested more than $150,000 into projects and programs led by and for black women, fems and girls. That matters, right? And so I just cling to the things that um, I can see and I can touch and I can feel and know to be true for me. Um, and then hope that um, at some point the rest of the world can see it too. My guest today has been Jay Warren Teamer, the inaugural Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Nebraska. Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was a formal close, but now you can tell me, where's the mystery trip going to? We're going to... Oh. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.